Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlotte and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're going to be talking about the TV show The Good Place. It is also, for the first time during a recording, raining very heavily outside. We are going to do our best to edit that noise out, but if that doesn't work properly, we're sorry for the background noise. You can just pretend that it's like a white noise thing if you need to. And try not to fall asleep. Uh, lots of people use podcasts to fall asleep. Uh, I suppose. I assume that we're very soporific. So. Except for the occasional laughing. Yes. We will be spoiling the entirety of the four seasons of The Good Place. I would recommend that you watch the four seasons before listening to this podcast because it's a very good show and it does hinge a lot on not knowing necessarily what's going on. If we have any other spoiler warnings or content warnings, we will drop those in right here. Hello! We're light on spoiler warnings this week. We have a very brief mention of Russian Doll, just noting some stuff that we talked about in a previous episode. There is the world's smallest spoiler for a joke in Wreck-It Ralph. And we, in our feedback section at the end, talk about a couple of the early quests in Horizon Zero Dawn. And there aren't really any content warnings either, so yay, that's nice. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. The Good Place is a comedy series that takes place across four seasons. In the first season, four humans are in an experimental version of Hell where the demon architect, Michael, is setting things up so that the four of them will torture each other for eternity. Um, However, Eleanor figures it out that they're actually in the bad place, and that results in Michael trying to redo the experiment over and over without permission, but they keep figuring it out. Eventually, to save his own skin from getting, like, retired uh, and exterminated, basically, and the four humans being sent to like a traditional torture hell, um, they team up to try and prove that humans can improve after they die and can become better people if in the right circumstances and aren't inherently evil. So the humans are given another chance at life, um, but then Michael kind of ruins that because he accidentally shows them the portal to the afterlife, which gives them the opportunity to go and like investigate basically paragons of virtue in the modern world. And then when they're back in the afterlife, check to see why none of these people have been getting into the real good place. Eventually they realize that no one has gotten into the good place in over 500 years and conclude that the point system that human souls are judged on is basically fundamentally flawed and is incompatible with modern life and its complexities. They make a case before this like eternal judge that the point system is broken and that humans have the capacity to continue to improve after death. They're allowed to do another experiment with other humans. They are able to show capacity for growth after death, so then they have to fix the system. Eventually they do that. Once they fix the afterlife system and basically give people continuing chances to challenge themselves and improve until they can qualify to be in the good place, they realize heaven itself has its own fundamental problem of eternity leading to sort of a apathy and breakdown of capacity to enjoy things. Um, And so they essentially implement an exit door into, from heaven. So once you're done and you're at peace and you really have no nothing else you want to experience, you can move on and become one with the universe or whatever it is that happens after that point. And that's the entire show. It's a very long summary. I'm sorry. Is that everything? I think that's good. I think that's good. It gives us some good points to work from. Okay. Yeah. So sorry about the long summary. Again, it's four seasons. Okay. Um, I do want to preface this discussion by saying that while I believe we both have a basic grounding in philosophical works, neither of us are 
philosophy experts. Uh, we're not going to be speaking in great depth about the philosophy that takes place in this show. There is an awful lot of philosophical discussion. We will be touching on it. If you want a full comprehensive discussion of the philosophy in this show, there's a podcast put out by the people from behind the show. A YouTube series as well. Oh, by the same people? I believe so. There is definitely a YouTube series that is just going through the philosophy of The Good Place. And the podcast is called Good Place Podcast? I don't remember, but it's hosted by the actor who plays Sean, the judge, or not the judge, the the bad place guy, uh, head guy. Yes. The bad, pl- the bad place guy, head guy. <laughs> the guy who plays Sean, who, which is Michael's boss from The Bad Place. Okay. Disclaimer mate. Where do you want to begin? Well, we had some topics that we identified before we sat down to do this podcast. Yes, and which one of them would you like to begin with? I'm not sure. Does it make Do any of them flow into the others? Like, is there a logical order? So I think it makes sense to start with the storytelling elements on this series, uh, and then we can get into some of the plot details a bit more later on. So a lot of the story is told through flashbacks, and we also see very similar events repeated multiple times, because the world that the main characters are in gets rebooted multiple times and they're sort of playing things out with slight tweaks. So I think that'd be a good place for us to start this conversation. Yeah, I think that's a good one. As you're saying that, I was just realizing that the way that Janet evolves each time she's rebooted is a parallel type of mechanism with the way that the humans continue to improve as people through the successive iterations of Michael's neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, They keep growing and changing and same thing when they get their second chance at life and the system that the humans ultimately end up coming up with with Michael is for people to just successively go through you know series of tests to challenge them in the areas that they're flawed in and so it's that same kind of process of like each time you're put into the new situation to do things again you're carrying over some of what you learned the time before and becoming a better version of who you were Hmm. yeah like loops are super important like and they're not loops in that you don't do anything it's kind of like with russian doll where like you're trying to make some progress every time and the previous experience that you had even if you seem to be starting in the same place you're not really starting in the same place because you are different there's some essence there that's different right even if everything else seems to be the same as far as the storytelling device The flashbacks that you mentioned too, I think that those are used really effectively to provide context for why the people that are, you're supposed to care about in the series to essentially like make you not hate them for their shittiness, you know, like it's to make their horribleness make sense. Yeah. So like with Eleanor in particular, Mm -hmm. um, that we perhaps get the most view of her life before death her life i guess um we get a lot of scenes with like her as a child and her mother Mm -hmm. drinking a lot and explaining how their family dog is dead and move on don't don't cry and be upset or you'll make me mad or really you'll but you'll bum her out like she's already like it will be more of a burden to her if she also then has to do some emotional labor with you yeah and it's not it's interesting because you do get to see both of them being really shitty, and a lot of the time you see how shitty they were first, and then around the time that you might, like, write them off as just trash human beings that are just like, oh my god, what an asshole. 
that you might have a harder time empathizing with them, you also get that context of, no, this didn't come out of nowhere. Like talking about, you know, her parents, Eleanor's parents were super neglectful and emotionally unsupportive. And then Tahani's parents were emotionally abusive to an extreme degree. And so it kind of takes the edge off of some of their most insufferable qualities. It's interesting that we don't really get an explanation of, like, it is through flashbacks, but we don't get an explanation of Chidi's flaws, or, like, the, the origin of his flaws, until fairly late in season four. Um, and Jason, we don't get anything until, like, they go back to Earth and you meet his father mm-hmm. and you're like, uh... Okay, yeah, you're like, I see, I see how you got here from there. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. I got the sense in the earlier seasons that the lack of how horrible, like, the lack of a build-up for Chidi as a terrible person is partly to highlight what you're then going to find out about the point system just being completely unrealistic and not working for humans with no one getting in at 500 years. Well, well, Charlotte, he drank almond milk. I, I know. He knew it was bad for the rainforest. He knew it was bad for the rainforest, it's true. But yeah, like, it is part of, I think, illustrating how you're you're screwed either way. Like, if you directly hurt other people, that's bad. If you do good but for the wrong reasons, like Tani, that's bad. If you are so paralyzed with indecision that you make everyone else around you miserable because you don't want to make the wrong choice, that's bad. If you just act without any care for the consequences and, you know, who you hurt, Jason. That's also bad. So it's just like, it doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter if you're trying, like Chidi, because it's I think impossible. Chidi might be very trying. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter if the consequences of your actions are good, like Tahani's. And it doesn't matter if you have no moral principle grounding to work from, if you are essentially acting on your programming, like Eleanor and Jason, to an extent, like, you're still screwed. Yeah. And I mean, I think... To, to highlight your point, and I know we've got a little bit off topic, I think with Chidi, it's very evident that it's such a minor problem that he is indecisive, that they have to take it to such an extreme of ridiculousness, mm-hmm. that's how words work, to make it be a feasible bad thing to get you him into the bad place. Well, it's because he's he gets to the bad place because of the consequences of his inaction. Tahani gets to the bad place because of the motivations behind her actions etc it's like it's like i said it's the damned if you do damned if you don't situation also like it does piss me off kind of that chidi is penalized for essentially having crippling anxiety yeah um and so you're seeing this criminalization of mental illness basically but on like a global or on a on a universal afterlife for eternity scale which Deeply problematic, which is the whole point, that the whole system is completely unrealistic. It doesn't take into account people's actual circumstances and the scope of their awareness of what their actions are ultimately going to have as effects. But we've, as you say, we've gotten off topic. Like, But talking about the flashbacks and things like that, like they, I think, serve to give you some insight as to, like, okay, this is why this person was shitty, or this is why this person was a shitty force in the universe. Yeah. Even if they themselves aren't a bad person, like Chidi, but also give you that context of the world around them that made that a thing for them. See, I think that that's, that particular use of flashbacks is interesting, 
and it does build a lot more of the characters up for you when you meet them when they're already dead. Mm -hmm. But it is a fairly mundane use of the flashbacks. Mm -hmm. I think possibly the more interesting aspect of it is the way that some of the flashbacks happen within the story. So you have characters learning about how they died or learning about things that they did in the past iterations of themselves Mm -hmm. to get a more complete understanding of themselves. I just thought that was an interesting use where sometimes it's you're learning that Tahani died because she pulled a statue of her sister down on herself. Mm -hmm. In Cleveland. Of course. Um, Which was the worst part, clearly. You're learning that, but they're also learning that, and you get to deal with their the characters' mm-hmm. realizations of what that means. So not the dying in Cleveland part. I mm-hmm. mean, but then it sort of comes to a head when you have sort of Cheedy in season four when he gets his superpower of confidence, mm-hmm. and it's the result of having eight hundred versions of himself downloaded into his brain Mm -hmm. like an ultimate flashback Mm -hmm. um and it makes sense that that would result in his no longer being so paralyzed by indecision because he has 800 lives of decisions that he's made he can he can aggregate the data and come at the like algorithmically correct choices like we have to order the tiramisu he knows because he's lived 800 versions of the good place and knows what he actually wants i mean (laughs) To go off topic again, um, just talking about Chidi, you characterise his anxiety as mental health. Mm-hmm. In the show, it's set up as almost explicitly not mental health as an issue, I would say, because you're shown the birth of his concerns, mm-hmm. and it's his, it was his ability to convince his parents not to divorce mm-hmm. gave him this certainty that there was a correct answer to every problem. Mm-hmm. Which is probably wrong. And put him in a position where he was like, well, I, should, I shouldn't do anything until I know what the correct answer is. Because what if I pick not the best answer? Right. And that's ultimately the growth he has at the toward the end, wherein he writes down on the note, there is no one answer, but Eleanor is the answer. Yeah. So realizing that he had been wrong in all of those option paralysis things that he dealt with his whole life, that he couldn't really arrive at a single correct choice for everything. But his confidence comes from the ability to understand that there's not always one correct answer, but that he has made the correct answer with Eleanor mm-hmm. for him. So Yeah. So that was a note on flashbacks. We should talk a little bit about sort of the circular or repeated stories and those loops through similar themes. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate that there are characters who are outside of a lot of the loops and repetitions who are able to provide some commentary on them, like Mindy St. Clair and Michael, because they're able to sort of zoom out and see like the most important things that you can't understand if you're in the middle of a single version of something. And a lot of those are like the most important takeaways from the 802 afterlives or whatever. Like that Chidi always helped Eleanor, no matter what version of reality it was. And that they always formed a strong human connection, regardless of the nature of that friendship or relationship. And that they always beat Michael. And that they always figured it out. Yeah, every single time, even Jason one time figuring out. It's a real low point for me. Yes. Which is just great. I, You know what? I think Jason is actually a really interesting storytelling device. Like, just the character of Jason. Hmm. Because he is set up and consistently maintained throughout the story as this 
pretty bumbling idiot. Literally, he's beautiful and he's a moron and has absolutely, okay, has extremely limited capacity for understanding consequences or projecting into the future. But there are several times during the show that he is the one who has the important insight that is necessary for a problem. So he actually gives Michael good advice about teaming up at one point. He is able to trick Chidi into having faith in his relationship again at the end of the show. He does call it that they're in a prank show in the initial good place, which is pretty much what's actually going on. And so he's like the from the mouths of babes character, where it's just like, okay, yes, a lot of what you say is so stupid, but that's to distract from the points of time and really add to the profundity when it's not. He does also give us the very wise solution of anytime I had a problem and I threw a Molotov cocktail, boom, right away I had a different problem. Yeah. I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. But also, the Molotov cocktail works in one of the situations that they get into. It does help them get away from Sean at one point, so... But he does also throw quite a lot of them he does in the show. Right, I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying he should have thrown more Molotov cocktails? I'm saying if you throw them in every circumstance, you're eventually going to hit a circumstance where it is the appropriate response. And that's what happens. But but do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like, they definitely use his overall buffoonery to really make it stand out when he is profound. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I don't know I have anything to add to it, but mm. it's a fair point. <laughs> I think that one last thing to say about the sort of looping through similar themes in these sort of semicircular plot lines is uh, semicircular is it um, enables the creators to convey a message that would be harder to make as clear in a more traditional TV show that has a more linear plot line. That makes sense. They are trying to talk about the capacity for continual improvement. Yeah, it's in the same way that the show takes place over an unknown period of time. Many Jeremy Baramies. Uh Well, before they're in the good place, it's like 300 years. Yeah, and then even more after that. It gives the capacity for the characters to develop a extreme amount in certain ways, and for them to be able to show what is important. We'll get more onto the what is important aspect mm-hmm. in a minute. But I think that it's important to note that that bizarre way of telling the story does enable that a bit more. Sure. So I think at this point it makes sense to hop over onto a couple of the story elements that we want to talk about, and we'll come back to our other storytelling point at the end. So I think it's important to take a look at what the writers are saying about humanity and culture as it is today. There are some fairly overt moments when they're very heavy-handedly saying we're making a comment about current current society. There's some things about Trump in there. So it's these questions of, yeah, but who'd do a thing like that? And then they look at the camera and wink and nod and nudge, nudge, give or take. Reference to Chick-fil-A, etc. Which was the Chick-fil-A reference? Um, When the judge goes to Earth, Eleanor is trying to explain to the judge why, essentially, like, you cannot win with Earth. Like, no matter what choice you make, it's terrible. I can't remember if it's Jen or Eleanor, but one of them says there's a chicken sandwich that's delicious, but if you eat it, it means you hate gay people. Yeah, I think that's Jen. Yeah. The judge. And it's just like, well, what the hell? Like, What? Yeah, which is exactly where I want to go with this, which is the commentary on the fact that life has become so complex. The point system that they're talking about in the show 
um, hasn't left anyone in 500 years because 600 years ago, if you ate a tomato, you'd probably grown it in your backyard or like you'd bought it at the local market, whatever. And there wasn't a huge chain of events there. Tomato was a bad example. Yeah, you're probably right. Because New World Fruits. Because New World Fruits. Okay, so... 200 years. The example that I think I saw, I think it was in TV Tropes, 600 years ago, if you gave your grandmother a bouquet of flowers, you probably spent some time picking them in the countryside or in your garden, and you you gave them to her. But if you do that now, you probably supported like a whole infrastructure chain that includes a whole lot of pollution and potentially some like child or slave labor or whatever with people not being paid enough to live on to harvest flowers in the fields etc yeah um all of this stuff and you know stores that don't pay their employees enough etc so yeah. yeah that that is the example that's used in your in the show you're right yeah like you're complicit essentially in a whole lot of other inhumane practices that you may or may not know anything about and also may or may not feasibly be able to avoid if you want to say feed yourself right and it's fascinating to me that the show manages to take roughly three seasons setting up a mainstream show where they can have that conversation. And what it comes down to is the issue of there is no such thing as ethical consumerism. There are degrees of ethical consumerism. We certainly try our best to not support shitty business models, but you can't not in this world without... Becoming very isolated and essentially reverting in a lot of ways to a much simpler level of subsistence i mean even if you take it down to uh if you take it down to a base level of things if you live in a house that is connected to utilities Mm -hmm. the odds are your utility companies don't treat their work as well Mm -hmm. so if you take yourself off the grid and live in a field you'll get a letter fining you because you're not connected to the grid Mm -hmm. um this of course The things that we're referencing are for America particularly, which is where the show's written. I don't know the full details on these issues in other countries, but I'm... Global society, I'm sure, there's a decent track of problems in other countries too. Yeah. Any country that has Amazon in it has these problems. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how many times have we realized there's another thing we need to not buy because it's secretly part of Nestle, which we try to avoid supporting? You know, it's like, it's not even just that all of these things are connected, but a lot of those connections are intentionally obscured from, like, the consumer's awareness um, and just everyday existence. As you say, like, they did a lot of legwork to lay this foundation to be able to say, no matter what choice you make, you're probably becoming part of a chain that hurts other people. Which I think is impressive. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that Michael Schur, the creator was sort of given a blank check with at least the first season of this show and did take it where he wanted to take it in the end. Like season four was the final season because that was how much he wanted to uh, he wanted to bring it to its conclusion and that was it. Which I respect. Yes. There are definitely other shows I have watched and enjoyed and got to a certain season and it's like, you hadn't planned this far ahead and... This it doesn't... shows. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But no, I think it's skillfully done to bring that as a story element into something that's so mainstream and fun and something where you wouldn't expect to necessarily be confronted with that particular issue just from how much our society has progressed. And I mean, it's not like a footnote. Mm-hmm. The, there's the throwaway comment about Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are some things that are more major. There are 
there are many philosophical ideas raised in the show, which we'll get more into a little bit, that some of which are just throwaway lines. But this is a major plot point for several episodes. The issue that you come across the character of Doug Forsett, who has predicted the point system while extremely high. Hallucinates the accurate yes. point system. Doug Forsett, who hallucinates 92 the accurate 92% correct. Even when he has a full understanding of it, he cannot abide by the point system in a way that he would get into the good place. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tries to by like being off the grid and using a composting toilet and like doing as much as he can to extricate himself from all of these larger infrastructure and chains that are exploitative. Yeah. Although I we argued about this at the time, but also weren't his motivations corrupt much like Tahani's it was like. Tahani was raising money for charity because she really just wanted to prove she was as good as her sister to her parents, which is not a good reason to be doing good things. Doug Forsett was not necessarily trying to do all good things and not do bad things because of their inherent goodness and, you know, wanting to do good in the world and not do bad in the world, but because he was aware of the point system for the most part and didn't was afraid of getting going to the bad place. Yeah. But the show seems to ignore that point. They do, which is very frustrating because they make such a big deal about motivations being corrupt, precluding you from actually accruing any sort of like goodness points, no matter how great you are, no matter what the consequences of your actions are in other parts of the plot before that. That did annoy me as a plot hole that uh, still bugs me. It'll be okay. Will it though? Will it? Did you have anything you want to add on that plot point? I don't really have. Story on. I don't really have a lot to add about that. I think that it's very clear that that's what they were talking about, and I agree with you that it is awesome to see a show that is primarily like an, an entertainment show. Like this is not the type of medium that you normally get, like a big philosophical and like critical essay from. You know about some of the deepest flaws in the way that we run the world. You know a lot of the problems in our systems. Um, and so it is really cool to actually have something mainstream take that on. And it does manage to tackle a decent number of these things. I think that's one that I particularly appreciate. But I mean, you mentioned the, it's a very, very big thing throughout the show that your motivations need to be for the right reason. And there's a whole stream of things like one of the ones that's been going around recently is people saying like, don't video yourself giving food to homeless people because... You, you're looking at me blankly as if you know nothing about this. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, there, there's, there was a trend of people videoing themselves giving food to homeless people and posting it as a, like, look, I'm doing this good thing. Um, which, sure, you're doing a good thing by giving someone food, but at the same time you're doing it for your own self-aggrandizingness. Yeah, also this And also dehumanizing the person in the place. Well, not even just that, but you're also exposing their homelessness to a wider audience and they may not necessarily want themselves out there in that context like that's probably not their best day and probably not the situation in which they necessarily want to be like you know have their image proliferated etc that's not cool yeah but that and similar things of like if you're going to do a good thing do the good thing but you don't need to post about it on social media necessarily Yeah. So it hits some points. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Should we go on to our next point? Sure. Another important central idea that kind of goes through this story in a few different ways is this recurring idea that 
in a lot of ways, who we are and what our flaws are, are informed by our environment and our experiences growing up and those sort of lessons that we learned about how to get get along in life that way. But also as it goes on, it starts to emphasize more and more that, yes, that might be a big part of how you start, but you always have the capacity to grow and change. And also you are yourself an actor in shaping that environment. And in particular with the other people that you bring into your life and the type of things that you want to prioritize, you can grow and change and adapt and become a better person, like most effectively through strong connections with other humans, with other people. Yeah, I think that the important part of that is that you do have to have some that, that little push. It might not be a big thing that has to be there for you, but if you're shown a certain way of being and never given another way to think about something, then you're not necessarily likely to challenge those ideas. Because that's the whole thing with when they go back to Earth, and the argument is, like, in this place where we had these good influences from, say, Chidi um, on Eleanor, mm-hmm. like... Eleanor was able to improve. Um, Back on Earth, Michael is able to give her a couple of pushes in the right direction. Right, which is interesting because she starts off, you know, continuing on in a bettering herself direction at the beginning of that second chance, but then she is punished by her environment, which is the same environment that led to her being kind of a dirtbag before, kind of punishes her back into that same mold, and she concludes that there's no point trying to be a good person because the world just shits on you. You're there's always a reason that the thing that you're doing is is not as good as you think it is and, you know, is going to come back to bite you and so she gives up. And it's the push that she gets is somebody who does encourage her to reflect back on like why she wanted to be a better person in the first place and think about those ideas again and that inspires her to seek out Chidi and continue working in that direction. But so it it all that one in particular I really like cuz it does show that you know, that environment's going to try and keep you where you were if it doesn't change. Which I think is a really important way of showing the world that mm-hmm. we're in. Like We just sat here and talked about ethical consumerism and mm-hmm. attempts to not buy products from Nestle. Mm-hmm. There have certainly been times when I've realized that a product that I like is made by Nestle. Mm-hmm. We'll link in the show notes why we hate Nestle. We won't get into it here. And there's always that moment of, what if I just pretended I didn't know this was made by Nestle? Like, do I really need to boycott them? Can I give money to these people? No, I can't. Yeah. But there's always that moment of doubt. Yeah, and it's the same thing with Chick-fil-A. And it's like, yes, certain things that they make are very good. Things that I enjoyed before I realized that they, you know, supported things that I am fundamentally opposed to giving money to. And specifically homophobic organizations and you know it's annoying because other people will be getting it or it'll be somewhere or it'll be the convenient thing to stop at and it's like and I remember enjoying it back when I used to buy Chick-fil-A stuff and so it's just I don't know I, we can cut all this I don't know no no I, I think it, I think you, you make a valid point um my rambly valid point yeah um but I feel that that's one of the things that is really useful in the show for people to hear mm-hmm. is... That there is a tasty fried chicken sandwich that if you eat it, it means you hate gay people. That's not what I meant. <laughs> um, I, I No, I think it's, it's helpful for people to hear, uh, as a message from the show, the 
it's the combination of doing good and the motivations being good and that aspect of it doesn't necessarily matter whether you're successful as long as you're trying mm-hmm. um i think that can be helpful to people who are in a situation where it can seem helpless to keep trying to do good in this world that keeps insisting on shitting on you mm-hmm. yeah i there's a lot of stuff that goes around, at least on um, my newsfeed on Facebook, and I'm sure you see it too. That we do um, have almost the same newsfeed at this point. So. <laughs> that when you know you'll see the posts about things that you can do to be a bit more sustainable and a bit you know less a part of and that ways that you can kind of change things that you're doing to be less destructive to the environment. And then always the also the comments about, yes, but it's corporations' activities that are like the lion's share of the problems that we're having. And it's, it's frustrating because on the one hand, it's like, yes, you shouldn't feel like that's all on you. And like, if you can't not use plastic straws, like, then you're doing the environment you by yourself with your you know, straw gluttony. But it's also not helpful to be like, well, your contributions to this problem don't matter because if the bigger um, offenders in this arena don't do anything, the small things you do won't really be enough. Um, I feel like either way you look at it, it's demoralizing. It's like either I am not making enough of a difference or like if I do something, it's not going to make enough of a difference. And if I don't do something, I'm judged and I feel shitty and I feel like I'm not doing anything to help, you know, so it sucks both ways. Yeah. Like we've reduced our meat intake and dairy and stuff. And I think a big part of that is to reduce, you know, the impact that our particular dietary habits and consuming habits have on the environment. But I think we also know that us doing that ourselves is not going to, you know, avert the climate crisis. No. But it does maintain that um, optimistic air. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the thing that we didn't really mention that I think is important at the beginning is the people that we see as being bad in the show and the people that are justified as being put in the bad place for whatever reason. Even Brent? The really privileged white guy in the... I think it's Brett or Brent. I think it's Brent. Anyway... Even the really privileged guy who's part of the experiment in the last season, you get an impression that it's the product of the environment that you were raised in that is a big issue, and that that is something that, with the right outside influences, might be overcome. And eventually. The right, eventually. Um, it might take a whole lot of reboots that mm-hmm. the point of their test to get into the good place is to help people improve over time, over time, over time. Mm -hmm. It's something that they can't do on Earth because they're not given that chance to keep trying because our current society just shits on people. Mm -hmm. Um, It maintains this optimistic air that there is that ability for change if if someone comes and gives you the right thing. Admittedly, sometimes the right thing is when they're on Earth and realise that they can't get into the good place because they know the good place exists like they end up handing out large quantities of money and that that probably changes things for some people some, some people are stuck in a shitty situation and there's no way out for them except maybe 2 million dollars uh, but with the right outside input. yeah and i think a a big part of why it is able to maintain the optimistic sort of atmosphere and and overall sense is that the bottom line isn't about the world it's about individuals and so it's mm. about you know it doesn't matter if no matter there's there's the emphasis that even if none of your choices 
are going to be net positive in the world. You yourself are not a bad person for those choices. If you yourself are consistently trying to make the best choice you can with the information you have and the options you have available, it's that um, it kind of reminds me of in Wreck It Ralph when um, Ralph is at the bad guys support group and Zangief is like, you know, you are a bad guy. That doesn't mean you are a bad guy. It's like you are a bad guy, as in we are all bad guys in terms of this our role in this, in consumer culture. You know. Our grocery shopping is supporting a whole lot of exploitative labor practices, and there's not a lot we, as an individual, can do about that immediately in a way that, you know, we could continue to eat food um, and not starve. But being kind of stuck in that system doesn't make you inherently a bad person as long as you do what you can to try and make the minimally negative decision or like with with your relationships like that you're not you know that you're constantly trying to be a good friend be a good you know person in the world etc yeah it's the effort not the result that necessarily is what's important yeah And, and i do appreciate that they don't say to just don't worry about the consequences at all like that's an important part of making your choice is what do you know about the consequences because if you don't think about them at all that's careless and reckless. That's Jason, basically. Um, that's why Jason's in the bad place, because he just acts without thinking about it. And But if you know the consequences of different options and you choose the better one, you know, then you yourself are not at least trying to be a bad person. Yeah. I do have two, two comments on um, ethical consumerism that I want, want to touch on very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that it's not always feasible for a person to choose the better option when they're looking at purchasing things. Mm-hmm. If if you're standing there and there's one thing that you know is ethically not great and there's another thing that's ethically better, but you only have enough money for the one that is ethically mm-hmm. better, eggs as a simple thing. Mm-hmm. It's best to buy pasture-raised eggs. The chickens are treated more humanely. They're able to wander around. They're fed properly. There is also factory farm eggs where they are barely alive. The pasture-raised ones are more expensive to produce, so they're more expensive. If you are not in a position where you're able to afford to buy the fancy eggs, you shouldn't be punished for that. Right. If it's a choice between being humane in terms of the life of those animals and feeding your children, that's a difficult decision to make, and it's hard to condemn someone for that. Or it should be. Yes. Uh, the other thing was I do want to question the uh, idea that like some of these things weren't an issue more than 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. I have this wonderful image of the person picking up the thing at the market and taking it home and then they lose points because it turns out it was brought back from the Crusades or something. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or, you know, like slave labor was involved in its creation. Yeah. Because slavery has been around a while. Yes. And it's always been bad. Yes. Well, I do think Hot they. I do me. think that they say like Jefferson went to the bad place because of slavery. Right, but everyone in the last five hundred years did, and that's. And that's true. That's within mm. the last five hundred years because our country is very young. In fact, actually, what it means is that there's no Americans in the good place at the start of the good place. Yeah. There, there's no no me- colonists. Yes. No American colonists or their descendants. 
cool. Yeah, I do have an issue with the statement in The Good Place that no one had gotten into The Good Place in 521 years as a result of the interconnectedness of modern society and like how you can't avoid, you know, downstream consequences basically of what you're doing. Because there are some, there are still people who live in isolated and Mm. self-sufficient communities and there are Amish people, there are native groups, indigenous groups that still maintain their historical ways of life that can't all be assholes. Like, I don't don't understand why none of those people are getting into the good place, Um, but I digress. You make a fair point. Are they getting burned because they're not giving their children and sick people in their community access to like modern medicine and things like are they being burned by by the availability of well, things that only counts I, I don't for, know that only counts for people who know modern medicine exists does it it should because people are getting downstream issues for exploitative shit they don't know is part of the supply chain of things that they're doing so like it seems to be no matter how like whether you're aware of consequences of your choices or not or the existence of better choices or not you're still fucked so maybe that's what it is maybe it's the amish people are being burned by refusing to take advantage of or give other people the opportunity to use modern improvements in certain things like medicine or whatever i I have no idea but it, it seems Weird to me. Yeah. Just another proof of the unfairness of the system, I guess. They fix it, it's fine. They do fix it. But they have to take you into a perfect system where you're already dead and there's no living exploitation connected to any of your choices. Should we move on to our other storytelling point? Did you have anything else to add? Just thinking about that, basically it's that it's one of those experiments that only works, the results you can only get under experimental conditions... So the real world is too complicated. Anyway, if I think we, if we assume this human is a point of mass in a vacuum, yeah, <laughs> this works in a gravityless vacuum, <laughs> and so let's try it in not that and see what happens. We expect the same results. Okay, so to move on to our last storytelling point, mm-hmm. which is somewhat of an overt one, is the sort of philosophy as storytelling. Yeah, like they literally set up chalkboards and classroom orientations for like numerous episodes. Yeah, there there is an episode that devotes itself to explaining the trolley problem. Um, Which is a great episode. It is. I believe it won an award. I believe it. I think it's for, it's fairly common that you'll have a show where you can sit there and go, oh, they're espousing this idea. Mm-hmm. I, I know that because that's what we do on this podcast is we go, oh, they're talking about this idea. I think it's probably rare that you can tie it directly to a philosophical work and go, oh, this episode of Supernatural is espousing Kantian theory. But they explicitly reference particular philosophers right. and their major theories in the show. This doesn't. This show doesn't just manage to espouse theories. It literally like discusses the viability of the different ones in the context of a fun comedy yeah and it does use different philosophical orientations as instruments to solve different problems so like and to solve moral problems in a different way based on those different backgrounds the based on those different orientations like at one point eleanor makes a argument from the basis of moral particularism. Chidi is constantly referring back to like specific modes of ethical thought, like virtue ethics and Kantian theory. 
And of course, there's the repeated references to Scanlon's book, What We Owe to Each Other, which... Yeah. Like, the consequentialism presented by Scanlon and Aristotelian or Neo-Aristotelian virtue ethics are, like, the two main ones, like, philosophical schools that Chidi keeps referring back to. That and certain aspects of Kant in terms of, like, not lying and things like that. So from a storytelling point, you get these discussions which work as sort of this cultural commentary, as they're sort of questioning this how to be good in this world. And you'll get these little classroom scenes where they're there, but they manage to construct this compelling story around it because in a good story, to use a generalization, I'm sure there are good stories that don't abide by this, you take a protagonist and they grow throughout the thing. They have a they have an arc mm-hmm. and usually just something happens to them that changes them and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. For this that arc of changing is of getting to be morally better. And it is, particularly if you take just season one to look at, it is an arc that is deconstructed throughout the entirety of the season of how is this person getting better? Let's view this getting better, in quotes. Mm-hmm. I keep, I'm never going to get used to the podcast medium and not being able to make air quotes with my fingers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can do it. It just doesn't mean anything to it. But they are able to tell a story that goes through all these stages while deconstructing it here. So usually it's our job to go, oh, she's going through these stages, but they're within the story taking down. I think I just said the same thing four times. I'm very sorry. I think (laughs) I know what you're getting at. And I think that the reason that they're able to do this and like have the story be so explicitly about what it means to be a good person, how one becomes a better person, is because usually in a story arc, you have the protagonist person or group or whatever, and you have the big problem that they have to solve. And in the course of solving the problem and having challenges in the way, they become better people as a side effect. But in this story, the problem is that they're bad people. So you're able to really talk about what that means and how that happens, how one is a a bad person, what it means to be a bad person, how to, you know, to, in order to break down the challenges inherent with that and attack it head on, instead of having people just sort of absorb the overall them being less shitty over time through more subtle cues. Yeah, that's fair. The problem is they, they are bad people and they need to not be bad people. So you can explicitly talk about it. I don't know that it's unique for that. I didn't say it was unique. I'm saying that, like, I think that makes it easier for them to literally have lectures in the show about being a good person, etc. But I do think it is interesting how overt it is able to be about that and that the philosophy aspect is so prevalent, not just as a... It's not a prop. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a part of the story, down to the point that, like... What we owe to each other is like, the book is, I believe, the book that Eleanor tears a page out mm-hmm. of at the end of season one to write a note to Chidi, mm-hmm. and or, it's the or, one... or no, to write a, uh, to write a note to herself mm-hmm. after they've been rebooted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that book itself is a prop through the show multiple times. But I think the reason that they're able to do that is because by making the central problem that Eleanor specifically at first is a bad person, and later you find it's all of them. Yeah. 
that means that in the first season, they can explicitly have those classes on philosophy and those open conversations about philosophical orientations and, you know, moral theories. And once the audience has that and has done that and like they've done that legwork, they can integrate it into more aspects of the show and like the discussion of the problems with the point system and all of that stuff because they already got you there in the first season. Well, I don't know, you, you keep using the phrase, like, I think they're able to do that because, and I'm like, but I'm talking about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Like, the fact they're able to do it is... When I say they're able to do it, I mean, the audience is, remains, in, like, it stays engaging, it doesn't become luxury. Yeah. They're able to do it in a way that's entertaining because they've already gotten the audience partway there through that initial part of making that the central problem of the first season. Yeah. Does that make more sense? Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add on that as a storytelling device in particular? There's one more thing I did want to say about it. Another interesting thing about the way that they use philosophy as storytelling in the series is that they're not presenting like one philosophical orientation as like the be all end all like way to get to being a good person. There are two in particular that they show as being really important. There's the consequentialism and the virtue ethics. And they sort of end up coming together and meeting at this place of, in a lot of ways, like social contracts being sort of at the base of things where you need, there's the what we owe to each other consequentialist argument of you need to make decisions based on rules that no one can reasonably like no one you're sharing the universe with and society with would reasonably object to but also not countering this idea of like virtue ethics of there being higher principles that you specifically want to strive toward like being honest and not being cruel and things like that so it's like these are these objective ideas but they kind of end up being foundational principles of the agreements that you're making with the people you're sharing your life with. Hmm. So, like, you you can ultimately get to the same place, but you can get there different ways. Hmm. So I think that's important, too. Yeah. One size doesn't fit all. Yeah. Like, as long as you are trying to be a better person and you have some basis for that that takes into account some higher ideal than your own selfishness you are trying to be better and that is a good thing. Hmm. I don't think I have anything else to say about how they use philosophy as a storytelling device. Do you? No, I think that's it. So I think we've touched on the main things that we want to talk about. But I think the big question I have after watching this show um, is, I mean, I, I enjoy it, but why is it that this show that deals with death, the afterlife, and deep philosophical ideas so universally popular? I think that there are a couple of reasons. I think part of it is that people are increasingly aware of how impossible it is to make the perfect moral choice with most anything. The paralysis that Chidi experiences, I think, is something that's very relatable to a lot of us. I know we talked a little bit about it's difficult to grocery shop. You've got your budget on the one hand, and you've got the unethical big business practices going on that you know are not doing great things for the planet, not doing great things for different communities around the world, etc. And yet you don't really have other options in terms of buying food in a lot of places. 
we're increasingly aware of the impact that a lot of human endeavors have made on the health of the planet and the, the feasibility of leading healthy lives for future generations, etc. And at the same time, a lot of people are growing increasingly disenchanted with organized religion and the ideas of the afterlife that had been prevalent for you know a lot of recorded human history. And so at the same time that we're starting to question, are humans good? Humans in general, like, are we good? Are we a good thing on the planet? Are we ourselves good people? And what happens to us when we die? Are we going to get judged for all of the things that we have screwed up? Is there anything we can do to fix these things? A lot of these problems seem so big that they're impossible to make a dent in if you're just one person. So I think that it's helping, I think that it's caught on in a lot of ways because in a surprisingly optimistic way, it's validating a lot of those feelings and giving a hopeful message that's reassuring in terms of like the inherent worth of a person and the inherent ability of a person to become a better person. Yeah. Particularly through reconnecting or connecting with their community. Another thing that's also breaking down a lot in industrialized society, traditional forms of community making. Yeah, traditional forms at least. You get these budding online communities instead of things. Are different. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's, um, I think a large part of it is that there's this optimism to it that I think a lot of us might need. Everything is fine. But not blind optimism. Like, it does recognise the problems. Um, I, and I mean, I think culturally, I agree with everything you just said. I, I mean, I don't think we should discount that the writing is great and the yeah. and the casting is amazing. The chemistry, mm-hmm. I'm doing my air quotes again, between all the actors, like particularly with Chris and Mel and had Ted Danson and William Jackson Harper. Like, the, those three, the way they interact particularly is perfect for the show. And with Jamila Jamil and Manny Jacinto's both have these, what's the term? They're almost like set-piece characters. They're very strong just in their own way. They're going to come in and do the thing around everyone else, and it's just delightful to watch. Mm-hmm. Or lightly painful, but in a fun way. Yeah. And and Darcy Carden is yeah. also fantastic. Darcy um, Carden's great. I think she won an award for that Janet episode. She did, yes. So I think it is that combination of managing to be... A well-written, well-acted, light-hearted joy that is also very emotional, particularly the ending. But I think the fact that it manages to hit all those cultural notes mm-hmm. in a way that I think speaks to a lot of people right now, one way or another, mm-hmm. um, is really important. I read an interview with Ted Danson that he did fairly recently, just after the end of the show, and he was talking about the fact that like he'll be walking down the street and like twelve-year-olds will come up to him and be like. Oh, it's this, that, and the other, and uh, like you know, be walking through New York, and a construction worker will like duck out and be like, "Hey, like I love, love the show," sort of thing. Um, but how many people tell him to take it sleazy? I hope a lot. I hope a lot. I was gonna say I hope not too many, but I don't think for Ted Danson there is too many. Yeah, I think he would appreciate it every time. I might yeah. be wrong. Well, maybe that's just what he responds. I don't know. Anyway, I think that that's um, the a good answer to our big question. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger question is, do you have a bigger question? I think the bigger question is, what is the shittiest thing any of the parents in the show have done? Oh. No, no, I think the bigger question is, whose parents were the shittiest in that show? We get very little of Cheaties. 
they don't seem to be bad parents. Like, he's, no. he's not in the bad place because of his parents. So, so I think they were the least shitty. I feel that Jason's dad probably gets off on the motivation clause. Like, he was a shitty dad because he didn't have... There was no intention behind it. It's not like he was being selfish. He, he was just an 18-year-old, and 35 year, or 25 years later, he'd raised a 25-year-old kid, but was still an 18-year-old. Yeah. Um, well, and he says the only thing his dad ever did for him was distract the cops so he could get away. Yeah. Um. And so, like, you definitely get the sense there's some intergenerational patterns going on there where, like, his dad was also young and irresponsible and not a good role model, like, not a particularly parental influence. I think it comes down to Tahani and Eleanor's parents. I agree. I totally agree. They're both so bad. It's difficult because Tahani's parents show extreme favoritism and... And emotional cruelty, like, just straight right. up. I mean, like, and, and almost maliciously, mm-hmm. they do sort of repent after going through the good place test a whole bunch of times. Well after Eleanor and Chidi's parents are, like, getting along great in the good place. Yeah. Stuff, or at least her mom. Her um, dad's not mentioned. Maybe he's still going through the iterations when she moves on. <laughs> Eleanor's parents are extremely, extremely self-involved, mm-hmm. and having a child seems incidental to their lives. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's good. I think that, like, I think it's Tahani's parents are the worst because they're the ones that are strictly cruel. Yeah. Eleanor's parents are thoughtless and, as you say, self-involved. They really just should have given Eleanor up for adoption. They They didn't want to be parents. Yeah. But... I mean, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. No one can make that decision for anyone else. But they just didn't seem to actually want to raise a child in that they didn't do that at all. And she gets emancipated at, like, 15 or something. So, yeah. Yeah. Tani's parents spell her name wrong in their will. Yes. Tani's parents are terrible. Yeah. Who spells their kid's name wrong? Especially when you are wealthy enough that someone probably could have corrected that for you. No, don't. It'll be hilarious. (laughs) I'm not sure if I should be offended by that. Uh, should you? The, the the faux British accent. It is vaguely a hint of a faux British accent. Not much of one. Well, you said it. Um, More of a vague hint of an impression of Tahani's mom. Do you have fun facts? I do have fun facts. Do you want me to go first? Yes. Mostly because I don't think I have any fun facts. Okay, so I have a few different fun facts, many of which are linguistic or name fun facts. Some of those are, are pretty great. First, while we were talking about Jason in Florida, Jianyu Li, the monk that Jason is initially mistaken for in The Good Place, that name actually means in jail in Mandarin. Which is pretty great. Incidentally, Michael wow. means... Who is like God, which seems appropriate. Um, Mm. Janet is the name of the air service that takes people to Area 51, just another non-existent terminal, which is pretty much what she is. Huh. In terms of like a a computer terminal. Yeah. Access terminal. And because of the name stuff, I looked up what Eleanor means, and it means light or the bright one. Huh. Which is interesting when you consider light is off and like knowledge are often conflated and like so you have Eleanor being the answer and she's the one who comes up with the bright idea to have 
an end to the afterlife, etc. That uh, one's a bit more of a stretch, but well, also like then when um, at the end when she goes through the archway and like mm-hmm. there's a part of her, there's the little light that goes down and is the good impulse for the guy throwing yes. away mail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was neat. Which means that Michael's name on Earth, to go back to Michael, mm-hmm. would be would literally mean real man who is like God. Exactly. Yes. Also, Vicky, short for Victoria. She ends up like winning her fake coup with Michael. I, I'm I'm reaching. Yeah, you're, you're at the, I'm reaching at this point. I'm reaching. It's fine. Another amusing linguistic joke in this show is that in season three, episode six, Tahani visits her sister's exhibition in Budapest at a museum called Afontos Muvesti Museum, which literally translates to the important museum of art. And in that same episode, Chidi reads an article written by. Laszlo Usahiro, literally Leslie journalist. Yeah, so they just love doing hilarious things like that. There's an art gallery near where my parents live in Wales, which is often referred to as the Oriel Davis Gallery. And it took a long time for some people to realise that Oriel is just the Welsh word for gallery. And because of the order of nouns and adjectives in Welsh and English that it's just written as Oriel Davis is Davis mm-hmm. Gallery in Welsh. Another fun fact, and this is probably known to more people, but there was a video on the Good Places YouTube feed on January 4th, 2019 titled Janet's Void, What Actually Happens When Bing? Like the pinging noise from when she materializes. And it just it's just five hours of Janet standing around in her void, occasionally disappearing. Um, but YouTube commentators noticed that her disappearances were about the length of the episodes. Huh. So they just filmed Darcy Carden standing around for five hours, except for 22-minute chunks. Which I appreciate that attention to detail. Huh. Oh, the other one, last fun fact, is that I have been to some of the locations... Of The Good Place. I didn't know that I had been to some of the locations of The Good Place. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that you've been to Florida's Randy Metro Man Savage International Airport? No, I have not been to Randy Randy Macho Man Savage's International Airport. However, apparently some of the exteriors were shot in the Huntington Gardens in San Marino, California, and I've been to Huntington Gardens. They have an amazing succulent garden, which makes sense, because it's a part of of the world where succulents do really, really well, and that's not true for most botanical gardens. Literally, like, succulents larger than people. Wow. You feel like you're in the middle of prehistoric times. I could go on. There are a whole lot of fun facts about the show, just because there's so many little inside jokes and things, but why don't you have... Why don't you tell us some? So the show actually had two philosophy professors consult with them, one of whom... Oh, I should have pulled up their names. Well, when it was Scanlon, wasn't Didn't Scanlon consult with them? I know he knew about it, like he that he was being used in the show. I don't think he was one of the main ones. Okay. Well, he definitely was aware that they were referencing him in the show. Here we go. The show used two main philosophy consultants, one of whom was Pamela Hieronymi, and the other one was Todd May, which is an easier name to say. Um, they have an interesting disagreement about whether the in the final season the idea that if life were just eternal bliss you would go crazy, or whether you would just be fine and you would enjoy immortality, which I thought was interesting. 
but they also both have cameos in the final episode when Chidi is giving a lesson and a guy makes a point and Eleanor corrects him and he says, well, it's my book. It is his book. That's, <laughs> that's Todd May. That's pretty great. Um, and, and she then, does say, like, he did write it or something. Yeah. And then the woman who's sitting next to Eleanor, who is going to present the next class, is Pamela Her- Her- Heronomy. Heronomy. I imagine it's like Hieronymus, but yes. Hieronymy. And she says that she's going to be, te- or she says she's going to be teaching the trolley problem, and she says bring ponchos, it gets mm-hmm. messy or something. Yeah. Um, she actually like did a lot of the groundwork for the trolley episode. Oh, cool. So that's why there's that nice little callback there. That's cool. I like that they did that. The other fun fact I have is that there's some question over whether Michael finds love in his life on Earth. There is? There is, apparently. Because you sort of see a few snapshots. He is of the opinion that he does, and that that was, the, that was Michael Schroer's intention, because the person that plays the guitar teacher, who I know is a comedic actress anyway, is actually Ted Danson's wife. Oh, that's cute. So there's a nice little moment there of... There's an implication that maybe they have a thing. So. Oh, that's adorable. Okay, so before we sign off, I do have some feedback slash follow-up from our last episode on Horizon Zero Dawn. Okay. Amanda Dawson from the UK pointed out that uh, we were wrong. About what? Well, really, I was wrong, and but I think you agreed with me about the Nora not really having any father figures. Okay. We, we were very wrong. There's a quest called Daughter's Vengeance. Oh, yeah. Where you follow a Nora girl who's trying to track down Zaid. Yes. Who killed her father. Right. There's also a quick quest near the start of the game called In Her Mother's Footsteps, where her father asks you to track his daughter down after she's gone to retrieve her mother's spear. Yep. I remember Um, that, too. And I think that it's... um, Those are both early game quests, so it makes sense that we would forget them. Yeah. But, I mean, it's also what... That's where a lot of the Nora quests take place. Yes. Um, so I, I think there's probably a couple of other ones as well. So we were wrong. I'm sorry. Thank you, Amanda, for pointing that out. Um, she does also point out that it's interesting that it is usually the daughters that then seem to go out mm-hmm. questing either to get the spear back or to kill Zaid. Mm-hmm. Like it's her brother who's like, she went and did this thing. I'm still here. She went and did the thing. So there's still that element there. Mm-hmm. But we did make a small hiccup there. Yeah. So please discount everything we said about yeah. fathers in the previous episode. They clearly do have a name for them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, next week we are going to do a bit of a different episode on a recent movie. It's a, it'll maybe be a little bit a small review aspect to it, as well as our thoughts on its story and storytelling elements. Um, that's going to be Birds of Prey, the latest DC movie. We just saw it the other day and we have stuff we want to say, so we're going to say it and maybe you guys will listen we'll see that will be posting next week we will be posting a full schedule for march and april very soon i realize that i've said this before and (laughs) this time i'm telling the truth i promise and it's mostly charlene's fault it is not (laughs) liar but we will be starting off the first week of march with the first book of the mistborn trilogy We did a bit of a poll online to see whether people would rather that we did one episode for the entire trilogy or one episode for each book. And it was overwhelmingly that we should do one episode per book. So we're doing that and we'll see how it goes. In the meantime, you can see that schedule when I post it, which will hopefully be soon, on our Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, on Twitter at UnramblingsPod. 
you can also email us with any feedback or follow-up thoughts that you'd like us to add, as we just did, at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. And we encourage you to use the hashtag unramblings to talk about the show and what you're thinking about it and get a bit of a discussion going on social media. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll join us next week. I was always a fan of, they say in Florida, if you don't like this funeral, just wait a minute. Yeah, it's just so terrible. Delightfully dark. Um, what was the first stage of grief? Graffiti on a red lobster bathroom is the first stage of grief, right? I, I just think I think just a red lobster in general. Just going to Red Lobster or just graffitiing a Red Lobster? Yes. Okay. <laughs>